Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is the best way to stay on top of the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day. As Kaiser likes to say, it truly is a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Anthony Tao, SubChina's Asia Managing Editor, sitting in Kaiser's host chair at one of his favorite spots in Beijing, and one of mine as well. I am, of course, talking about the Beijing bookworm, a beacon of culture and civility amid Sanli Twin Entertainment District, which itself is sometimes mucky and repugnant. The Bookworm has been our community's intellectual hub for more than 10 years and serves as a vital meeting place for discussion, for collaboration, for music, poetry, and so much more. I am excited to be here, and I know Kaiser and Jeremy lament that they cannot be. Beijing, how are you? I am here with David Moser, who is no stranger to longtime Seneca listeners. He is a man of many talents, currently being wasted as the associate dean at Peking University's Yenching Academy. <laughs> I kid, I kid. I understand some of Professor Moser's students are here. Where are ya? <laughs> They're a wild and crazy bunch. Yeah. David, what have you done to them? <laughs> David, do you have a Goldcorn-esque greeting for the people? Mm, Goldcorn-esque. <laughs> He's from the South now, South from South Africa to South U.S. So just howdy, y'all. I think he does. He doesn't do it as well as I do. <laughs> <laughs> and joining us is Jess Miter, who has spent 20 years gracing stages and music venues around China. Jess was previously the resident jazz artist for East Shore Jazz Club, and recently the Booker and resident artist at Chow, just down the street from here. Jess has sung for the Beijing Olympics, performed with Quincy Jones. Maybe not with him, but for him. Oh, Oh, like you were in the same room and took turns going up. Yes. (laughs) She's done a lot of really interesting stuff. Jess, what part are you most proud of? Oh, I'm proud of it all. I'm just most proud that I showed up here 20 years ago. I think that's about as proud as I can get. And stayed. And stayed. Mm. If you haven't figured it out, we are talking about jazz today, that free-flowing musical art form with roots in West Africa and African-American musical traditions, originating from black communities of New Orleans in the late 1800s. It is, of course, all over the world now, China being no exception. Perhaps we can begin this discussion with a very basic question. How did jazz come to China? Because none other than Langston Hughes, 
the poet laureate of Harlem, said about 1934 Shanghai that that city, quote, seemed to have a weakness for American Negro performers. And he was, of course, referring to jazz musicians. How far back do we begin? Uh, well, of course, jazz uh, came to uh, China in the 1930s, 20s and 30s. Shanghai was no stranger to jazz, and of course, uh, or any kind of Western music. Buck Clayton, who later on would play with Count Basie, was there. Um, and there were some other, lots of other African-American musicians who made the trip across the Pacific to make money there. There was a lot of money flowing through Shanghai and a lot of foreigners who, who liked jazz. Um, so there was jazz. There was some Chinese jazz. It was very weird jazz. Their, their harmonic concept was a little bit skewed. But there was jazz, definitely, but uh, not after 1949. Speaking of money going through Shanghai, Langston Hughes also said he couldn't afford going to all the jazz venues in Shanghai. What are some big names that American listeners might be familiar with who played here? Not Shanghai, no. No big names. But Clayton and a few others. Maybe Andrew Field would know more than I do about. But there weren't. it was pretty far away. You didn't get people like Billie Holiday and so forth. It was too far away and not enough money. What about personally? What about your first jazz performance in Beijing? How did you get into it in China? Okay, well, Jess can jump in here too. She came a little later than I did. Than I did. Um, the first jazz I ever experienced... Um, was when I was a student at Peking University, somebody mentioned that uh, they asked me what I missed about the U.S., and I said, jazz. I mean, what else? They said, well, there's a jam session at Maxim's. And Maxim's, as you recall, was like the first foreign bistro sort of set up by, it was Pierre Cardin, I think, who, who boasted if you could set up a Maxim's in Beijing, you could put one on the moon. That's how, that's how alien and exotic Beijing seemed at the time. Um, but there was, I heard there was a jam session there, and uh, so I borrowed a battered trumpet. I'm not a piano player. I played piano in Beijing, but I never studied piano. I never, but I was a trumpet player. So I borrowed a battered old trumpet, Japanese trumpet, and made the trek down to Maxim's over where, it's the Maxim's over where Guomao is right now. It's not there anymore, but showed up, and indeed, there were some Chinese musicians there playing something like real jazz. And one of the Chinese musicians there was Cui Jian, the famous rock star who adored jazz. He's a trumpet player, of course. He's played with the symphony, and he's on his albums he plays trumpet. And lo and behold, and Jess will know what I'm talking about here, I got there and hear these musicians playing tunes out of this battered old book which some of you have played jazz, I don't know if you know, it's called, it's just called the real book. Because there's such a thing in jazz as the fake book. And the, f- the fake books are uh, music books that just have the melody and the chord accompanying its symbols above it. So you don't, it's not really full keyboard arrangement of anything. But if you know the tune, you can sort of pick out the melody and play the chord. So it's what jazz musicians use. And jazz musicians, the, the chords we call the changes. So I quickly dubbed this the Book of Changes because it's what the jazz musicians played. So these are, these are it looks like this. This makes great, great podcast, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but these are, these are the, the charts, There's the chord changes that we look at. But as you can see, it has weird names like, like uh, Confirmation and Con Alma and uh, the ESP and here's that rainy day. So the Chi- Chinese musicians couldn't really pronounce the tune, so they would say, let's do page 122. 
and they go, oh, 122, that's a good one. It's kind of like the old joke of prison jokes, you know, number 15, ha ha, you know. So let's do number 124. So that was my first uh, experience with jazz, and uh, it was quite amazing that, that even back then they had gotten hold of this and they were already in the world. What year so, was that? This would be 1993. Yeah. I was just going to say, I wanted to do this chronologically, so just before we get to you, since we know David came before the 1940s, before jazz left China, can you first real quick fill us in on the timeline? <laughs> what happened between the time jazz left Shanghai in the late 30s to when it came back around 1978 or so with the reform and opening? No, no, no. I mean, well, what happened to jazz was the, the World War II, the anti-Japanese war, which it went away. I mean, there was really no such thing as jazz, unless you call Chiang Kai-shek's weird improvisations jazz. Um, but uh, there were some jazz groups in the 1980s um, at the hotels, the foreign hotels. But it wasn't real jazz. There was some... Uh, uh, our friend Matt Roberts, who couldn't be here tonight, was a member of some of those groups in the 1980s. But really, jazz did not start in Beijing until after the 1990, 1991, 1992. So that's, we're talking about a big gap. And uh, the, the first people who played it were, were usually rock musicians or people who had just, you know... Jess, you want to chime in here, your experience? Because you came in the, in the mid-90s, right? I came at the late, the late 90s, in 97. So things were already kind of well on their way. But the, the group of people that were playing jazz were still, it was still a very small group. And I think it was much more experimental and acceptable that if you never played jazz before, it didn't matter. You could go ahead and try. Um, it comes, Shadia comes to my mind because he, he was a classically trained piano player and he was playing with Lawrence Koo and Bebe and Liu Yue and uh, Huang Yong and all of these dudes and uh, he didn't know anything but he was he had a fantastic ear and I think that people that had the fantastic ear went on to take jazz into their own form and and he was I mean he's a badass composer now I mean really amazing composer but yeah jazz was really juvenile could you say that Infantile. Not without pejorative. <laughs> I choose some other word than that, but yeah. Infantile. In its early stages, in yes. the learning process, learning yes. stage. A period of tutelage. Yes. <laughs> so Chinese audiences had no problem with other foreign forms of music, such as disco, rock, even indie, and maybe even heavy metal. What was the reaction to jazz? What, if any, were the obstacles that the audience had to overcome? I don't know. I think that at that time, when I, even when I was here, late, I mean, much later than you, I still feel that people were just so open. Everything was so open. Anything was acceptable. I mean, anything that they could get a CD of anything, they would listen to it at least once. And if they liked it, maybe twice or like over and over and hoard it away. Um, I think that they didn't know that they shouldn't understand it. But as time go went on, like when in the 2000 in the oddies, I guess. I would get a lot of people coming up to me afterwards and going, yeah, I don't know anything about jazz. I, I can't understand it. And I was like, well, you just listened to the show. What did you think? And they're like, well, I liked it. Well, I'm like, that's, what, that's all you need to know for jazz for now. Um, but the education process about jazz and what the hell we're doing up on stage, you know, between playing a head and, um, or a melody and then going into the improvisation 
bit of it and then coming back to the melody they didn't understand what we were doing I think Dave has a really funny story about that actually well, lots of funny stories but the <laughs> one one thing I think I don't know how musically hip hip our audience is or hep I don't know which one is more hip <clears throat> but the the one of the challenges was teaching them swing the basic feeling of swing because when you grow up in our <laughs> culture you hear that on the radio even if you don't no jazz you don't know you you get a feel for it you don't even know what it is but they didn't they had not heard it in fact as you said very often they didn't even have any cds they were playing these tunes with with us night after night and they never heard the original tune my god and i say you know why are you playing it that way so i've never heard it and and if they got their hands on a on a cassette tape or a cd they would hoard it and they wouldn't share it with their other musicians, friends. You know, it says, no, you'll learn the secrets. You know, I've heard these originals. It's like the Holy Grail or something. But this thing of jazz, and I have to explain a little bit why it's so difficult. Swing, I mean, we all know the feeling, right? This feeling, right? Yeah, don't get carried away, Jess. But what that is, technically, is it's, if you write in just straight eighth notes, that would be da 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 straight like that. In jazz, straight eighth notes are played like triplets, one, two, three. So for like for eights, it's one, two, one, two, one, two. In jazz, you still write them as eights, but it's one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two. So it's one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, da, 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 one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, da, 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 da. So we know that, why we can do that intuitively. So you have some like jingle bells, you know, jingle bells, jingle, but then you jazz it up, you know, jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way, and you just, okay, it's corny, but we all can do it. They couldn't do that. They didn't quite know what it was. So to explain it to them, <clears throat> no, see, it's one, two, three, one, two, three, oh, I get it, right? All well and good at a slow tempo. So you're going da, 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 da. The trick is, a lot of jazz tempos, tempi are at blisteringly fast or very fast. Mm. So if you have something like a confirmation or something there's no way that you can consciously think of that triplet while you're playing. Your head would explode, right? It has to be this intuitive thing like that. And this, this jazz, this swing feel, right, mm. which they didn't have a translation for it, you know, is, is have to be inter internalized because the entire jazz idiom and the phrasing and the feeling and the rhythm is suffused with that swing. If you don't have it, you just don't have it. It don't mean a thing if you ain't got that swing, do right? Do-wop, do-wop, do-wop. Do do and that was the hardest thing to communicate to the, to the players because at fast tempos, they didn't know how to handle it. And it took them a long time to sort of internalize it. And of course, if you had a group trying to get that feeling, a big band, then it was just collapse into mush, right? So that was one of the, that's so basic, but you don't think about it. That's a, something they had to learn. It's like trying to teach us Peking opera. You know, you can't do it unless you grow up with it. So, I mean, that, that was a big challenge. So Chinese audiences had no problem with other foreign forms of music, such as disco, rock, even indie and maybe even heavy metal. What was the reaction to jazz? What, if any, were the obstacles that the audience had to overcome? This was at the same place at Maxime's, right? And I was meeting these jazz musicians. This guy came up, he's sort of a buff, sort of well-built 
guy, and I said, this guy looks like a PLA soldier. And I said, hi, who are you? His name is Duin Zhao. And I said, what do you do? He said, I'm a PLA soldier. I said, aha. <laughs> he said, well, what are you doing here? He said, I'm with the PLA Army Band. During the day, we play the national anthem for Jiang Zemin, and at night, I sneak out and play jazz. I said, you're not supposed to do that. I said, no, 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 they frown on jazz. You know, it's bad music. It's, it's, it's KMT music. It's Gong Chang Dang. It's a... Uh, music. If you have, if you've ever watched these old revolutionary films, you know there's this uh, the, the KMT officers there, and there's this slinky, you know, skanky whatever there. And there's saxophone. There's always jazz in the background, <laughs> like jazz just causes lewdness, and it's just like it's the root of all immorality and political incorrectness. Isn't that why you play it? That's why I love it. Yeah, absolutely. I know that's why you like it. Absolutely. So um, yeah, so he was. And he had never he he had only heard jazz from the VOA shortwave, and he one night he was listening and he said, "Wow, what is this? It's so amazing, Benny Goodman." Oh man! And he said, "Do you know Benny Goodman?" <laughs> I said, well, of course. He says, "Can can you give me some of his music? I've only heard him on VOA shortwave, right?" So <clears throat> he got the idea to he wanted to do a big band, but he had to convince the Army Brass. Because there are all these guys at the army base sitting around with nothing else to do, uh, playing this boring, you know, practicing the national anthem. How often can you play that? And uh, so they wanted to do something more interesting. So I helped them buy some charts from the United States and got some big band charts, these big, these uh, sheet music. And he had to talk the army brass into letting him form this group. And the the, the army was very much against it. He said, "This no, this is." Undignified. It's no good. We shouldn't. The PLA shouldn't be playing this degenerate music. And he, and he worked on them. He said, "No, no, no. This is very class-conscious music. It's the music of oppressed Black Americans who were the former slaves, and it's very proletarian music. You should really support this music." And they sort of they didn't like it. And he snuck around. They snuck me into the army base to rehearsals. Like they made me, you know, put my head down as they put me as we drove into the army base. And they would laugh. Says, "What? What?" What military secrets are you going to steal here? The chords to the national anthem, or what? But um, and so he. So to make a long story short, I could talk a lot about Duin Zhao. But basically, he succeeded in in forming this big band, and they started to sound pretty good, right? And they started to get gigs because on New Year's Eve, the foreign hotel said a big band. That's traditional New Year's Western New Year's Eve stuff, and so they could play Moonlight Serenade and Benny Goodman songs or anything. And so they started getting these gigs at the big, you know, like the Jianguo and the big hotels. And then the army brass noticed. They said, what? This music can make money? <laughs> and he lost control of the big band. <laughs> the, 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 the colonels and stuff said, all right, this is our baby now. <laughs> so they controlled the money. So he started this big band, and he lost control of it after a while. The story of so many, actually. <laughs> I can only assume because it was a big band, he had to convince the army woodwinds as well as the army brass. <laughs> I was a little late on that. <laughs> Just you've sang with Cui Jian, the father of Chinese rock. What was that experience like? Well, the first time that I met him at CD Cafe before the CD Jazz Cafe, CD Cafe. And he came and saw one of my original shows because I also sing uh, stuff that I've written. And uh, I was really flabbergasted that I was meeting him because I'd heard so much about him and I knew his music and stuff. And then a couple of years later, maybe two or three years later, the Yugong Yishan, the first Yugong Yishan, showed up in the parking lot 
kind of close by to here, actually. It used to be where, like, um, the bus was. Do you remember the bus? Yeah. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, so he came and he did a jam session. There were jam sessions going. It was kind of like blues and funk and stuff like that. And he showed up with his trumpet. And I was even more shocked because I didn't realize that he was so into it. And then over the years, uh, we've done different collaborations and stuff. He's, he's such a cool dude, like really open-minded. And you can feel that what you're talking about in the 80s when everything was sort of just like opened up and people were just like feed me feed me like he's got this very open mind to uh musicians and his whole band are jazz musicians all of them they're like the best jazz musicians in china i'll say what was the last thing you've done with him uh i did i i sang a grievous older woman's part uh, for an original movie that he made called Blue Sky Bones. And uh, it was really interesting because I had no idea what the movie was about at all. And so when I sang it, it was two years or a year and a half later, and I got invited to the movie premiere, and I was sitting in the movie, and it was the apex, like the climax of the story where my voice starts coming through the theater, and I was just like, oh, my God, like this, <laughs> I'm crying. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so that was the last thing I did. Do you think it's easier for Chinese audiences to respond to a singer rather than pure instrumental? I think that there are kind of two parts to it. Uh, the simple layman, I think that they could go either way, instrumental or vocal. I think that vocals in general, because there's somebody speaking on the mic, like when I sing jazz, I try to, if the Chinese audience is there, I explain a little bit about what the song is about lyrically so that they can kind of get the the gist of the music and how it cooperates with the lyric. Um, but then I think that in terms of corporate jazz, like sort of going out and doing events for Audi's newest car release while they eat a buffet dinner at a five-star hotel, I think they like to have the vocal for that reason but like for someone to look at that's in a pretty dress, but it's not the same. So in general, like at jazz clubs, I think vocals are welcome, but I don't think that it makes it more accessible. I don't. What's the best and what's the worst gig you've done in China? Or I should preface this, David, you toured or you traveled with Wynton Marsalis and the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra back in 2000, right? That must have been pretty special. Uh, either of you can start with this one. That was probably the first really, really big name. Was Everyone knows Wynton Marsalis, right? The, the, the Lincoln Jazz Orchestra. Um, yeah, it was quite amazing. I went around translating for them, uh, uh, which, was quite a, which was quite a feat, uh, quite a difficult thing. Uh, trying to translate, you know, this next tune is called uh, East St. Louis Toodaloo. How do I translate that, right? And um, Winton, I started to get into it, and Winton would, would say something, and I would say, you know, the audience is not going to understand this. So, for example, he said, here's a, a Charles Mingus tune called Good, Goodbye Pork Pie Hat. Now, Pork Pie Hat was the hat that Lester Young, the saxophone player, used to wear. So it was a tune in memory of Lester Young because he always wore this pork pie hat. But the audience is not going to know, even if I translate pork pie hat, they don't know what, what are you talking about. 
So I would take what he said, goodbye, poor boy hat, and I would translate it to the Chinese audience saying, well, there was this jazz saxophone player named Lester Young. He always wore a pork pie hat. Mingus was a good friend of his, and he died, so he called his son a pork pie hat. And the audience would nod their heads, and Winton would look at me like, what did you just do, man? It just was one sentence, and you made like 20. What are you talking about? You know. So then he started screwing around with me. You know, he would give me really hard things and would see how I did it. You know, and uh, but it was it was it was a great experience because the Winton is so energetic about the music, and quite frankly, most of the audience I don't think understood a thing yeah. about what it was all about. Especially big band is just incomprehensible to them because of the. But there was something infectious about it. Uh, there were a lot of funny things too. I mean, this is almost cliche, but this really happened. Among the, they were mostly, I think, 90% African American musicians, right? So they're walking around in the sound checks and everything, and all around them, these Chinese technicians, and they're all using this common Chinese hesitation word, it was nigga, nigga. Joseph, nigga, 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 nigga. Russell Peters, is that his name? You know, makes a joke. But this really happened. And, um, you know, Winton said, Dave, let me ask you something. These people around here, I keep saying nigga, nigga, nigga. Is that the Chinese word for a black person? <laughs> that, no, 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 no. Don't, please, please, don't misunderstand. It's just a totally, it's, it's just it's like saying, uh, 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 oh. And I happened to mention this guy named, uh, what was his name, Wang? Wang, oh, this was, this guy's name was Wang Long. And of course, they were looking, Wang Long, Long Wang. So they started, they started making fun of his name for reasons he had no clue about. But then he told his crew, you know, don't say nigga. Don't say it. It makes them feel uncomfortable. He says, oh, okay. Why? He says, it means Hegway. Ah, okay. Don't say nigga. Don't say nigga. So, of course, then for the next few days, say, yo, nigga. Which made him even more suspicious. Like, wait a minute. It was just an innocent word. How come they keep squelching themselves? Or do you tell us the truth? I mean, this was like went on, you know, for the entire week. But anyway, it was it was fantastic, and Wynton Marsalis, if you don't know, I mean, the, I think it was inspirational to the Chinese audiences because this guy cared a lot about jazz education. Mm. I, I he would he would and, and Jess, you went backstage. Remember, we went backstage there, and he was there backstage, and there were, there would be kids come in. I saw several times kids came in with their trumpet. It's like a twelve-year-old kid with a trumpet, and he says, "Mr. Marsalis, I can't play high notes. Why not?" And he would say, "Well, sit down." Let's look at your lips. Let's look at your armature. And he would sit there for 30 minutes and give this kid a trumpet lesson wow. after a concert. And the parents were standing there snapping photos and everything. And the road crew was saying, can we get the hell out of here? You know, they're hungry. We want to get something to eat. He's there teaching this kid. So it was, it was, quite, ama- it was, it was quite amazing. And I think the audiences came away with, with at least Marcellus's infectious, infectiousness. He really cared about this music. It was, it was very close to his heart. And then now since then, of course, you know, Winter Marcellus is old hat. They know everyone knows him here, the jazz musicians. I should also mention, jazz has always been a kind of musician's music. I have jazz. I think you probably agree. I mean, the people really love it are the musicians. Yeah. Um, in fact, um, we played. You and I both have played so many gigs when there's like nobody in the house here in China. There's nobody there, but the, there are people jamming. They're playing till three in the morning. There's none. There's no audience and no money. Because they just loved it. They just thought it was, you know, amazing. Yeah, I agree. Do you have any stories you'd like to share with these 80 people? Well, you were asking about the best and the worst gigs. I think that the worst gig was playing in between two Volkswagen cars. <laughs> like this. 
with uh, our setup was just around this car. Oh, this car. Sorry, it's the double mic thing. Not used to this. Um, yeah, that was probably one of my worst. Although I can recall others. Uh, but I heard about the worst gig that my fr uh, longtime piano player that's been here, I think about the same amount of time as I have, Moreno, he's an Italian guy, him and another singer and Izumi, the drummer, they were in a car ride back from some event that they went to play jazz at and the driver drove off the road into a lake and then ran away. It was two o'clock in the morning and they, they were sleeping in the car and the car flipped over and got into the water and they all got out and they, they lived, but they were on the side of a road in the complete dark in the middle of the countryside with no real way to get out of there. That, that's the worst gig that I've heard about, but. <laughs> Cry me a river. Yeah, right. Cry. You know, one of the, the worst things back then was, of course, the Chinese, the average Chinese person, what's jazz? Kenny G. Yeah. So many people who say, Kenny G. Or Nora Jones. Now. No, no, Nora Jones is a little better than Kenny yeah, G. Yeah, but not jazz. No, it's not jazz, right? But Kenny G, they, 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 that was to them jazz. And I used to play hotels with Huang Yong. You mentioned him, you know, who's yeah. the, the guy who founded the Nine Gates Jazz Festival. And uh, so it's, we're like in a hotel lobby and we're playing jazz. And, and very often you get a, like a slip of paper, and usually you get a slip of paper from a customer. It's like a request. Can you play? And, and sometimes it was. And there were Japanese tourists, and it was always the same song, Take Five. <laughs> People are laughing. They know. This is, oh, come on. It's like the only jazz song they know is Take Five. So you can play it in our sleep, you know. We sometimes play it in four just to, to screw it up, you know. <laughs> But um, one time, a couple of times, got a slip of paper. <clears throat> and one time, I remember Huang Yu opened it up. And it said, can you please play some music that human beings can appreciate? <laughs> that's the so, worst gig you ever played? That's not the worst, but that was mm. common. It was a common thing. OK, let's bring this conversation back to modern day. How is Chinese jazz different now from jazz in the US or North America or anywhere else in the world? You know, the themes we tend to associate with this musical form include individuality and freedom and rebelliousness. Have any of these themes made the journey across the ocean, or is that context completely lacking? I think that after being here for 20 years, maybe like 12 or 13 years into it, I started to realize that, that jazz goes against the Chinese culture, um, the rule of, of expressing what's inside your heart to everybody in the room. Um, you don't do that. You're not supposed to blurt out how you're feeling. You're supposed to be humble and like row, 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 like this. And uh, for such a long time, I, was, I played with a lot of different Chinese musicians and there would be these moments where you could see them let go and then just be completely in the joy of the expression or the rhythm or the like the, the cooperation between the musicians and stuff. And it was so divine. But then there would be so many other times where, you know, they're just buried in the chart and they're looking at the chart and they're playing the chart and they're trying to keep up with the chart and they won't solo outside of anything that they hadn't practiced or that they had already practiced or whatever. So I find now that even though that's still a part of Chinese culture very much to not um, blurt out the stuff that you need to blurt out. 
Um, I think that the younger generation is, is, because they're exposed to so much jazz at such an early age and they can just listen to whatever they want by Googling it or by doing it, that their expression is much, much more free and different. Yeah, I was talking to Liu, Liu Yar, who's the, the saxophonist for the Seijian band, about yeah. this back, back then, you know, and, and um, he was saying how, I said, do you think that jazz will ever have, uh, that Chinese jazz will ever have the good soloist, because a good soloist has to be able to do what you just said, just just, just to be courageous and, and express themselves directly. He said, no, he said basically what you said. We've, we've been taught in school, you don't want to make a mistake. And I mentioned him this uh, this anecdote, I think it's true, Charles Mingus, I think, had big band, had a trombone player who was just fantastic technique, one of the best players that they had, but he fired him. And they said, hey, Mingus, why did you fire the trombone player? He was great. And he said, mother never made any mistakes. <laughs> and in jazz, if you never make a mistake, I mean, you're not really trying, you're not really pushing your boundaries. You've got to make mistakes, you know, otherwise it's not. And uh, Liu Yar, he knew, he knew just exactly what we were saying. He said, yes, that's the problem. That's the problem. We don't make mistakes. We're just like good little kids. We have to learn to be mother <laughs> <laughs> And there's a point to that, you know. They're, you, they're, they're in this tradition where you don't want to make a mistake and there's sort of this. But, you know, I've been, I have to say this about Chinese jazz musicians playing with them. They never actually were, tr were caught in the trap that a lot of Western players do, which is technique. Yeah. They want to like, do this blisteringly fast technique to show off. They never really got into that. And it, it's, it's the, what, who they worshipped was Miles Davis. And Miles Davis, uh, the, the kind of blue album, to this day is still the most popular. Those tunes, they still play them. And that's the most popular jazz album of all time. And it was all just you know, in, a, in a one afternoon and with no rehearsal at all. And everything on the album is like one take. So they never played the music before, they did it all in one take. And the Chinese musicians, they've, they've, they took to that. They really took Miles as an influence because it's more to do with space. It's more to do with the feeling. And there was, there was a, uh, on, if you remember on the back of that album jacket was a liner notes by Bill Evans, the piano player. And he likened uh, jazz improvisation to the Chinese, or he, meant, he was talking about the Japanese art of calligraphy. And if you stop and think about it, Calligraphy and jazz do have that thing in common, which is <clears throat> you, the, the masters, they study the art form for the entire life, and they're studying these standard, tech, the standard forms. And for the jazz musician, it's the standard tunes, the Tin Pan Alley, and you learn these tunes. And for the calligrapher, it's the characters, and they learn the shapes. But in both cases, for the jazz musician and the calligrapher, when they actually execute their art, they have to do it from beginning to end in, in at one time period. They can't go back in a race. They can't change anything. So it's a continuous line. So a, mu a musical line for the, compo for the musician and a, and a calligraphic line for the calligrapher, but it has to be done all in one stroke. And it has to reflect the standard form in a unique way that, 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 has, that represents the artist's state of mind at that exact moment. And I, and I used to think that was a cliche, but the, the more I think about it, that's what jazz has in common with calligraphy and the Eastern forms. And Miles Davis used to say to his musicians, he said, don't play what's there, play what isn't there. And if that's not Taoism, what, it, what is? Exactly, right? it's Shun Qi Zuran. It's Shun Qi Zuran, right? Yeah. So, that's, so the, the Chinese musicians are always, so if, there's, if there was or is a, th some, a thing as jazz with Chinese characteristics, it would be in this sort of mindset of, of this sort of, sort of Eastern quality, you know? But I think beyond that, I think what Jess says is they still haven't quite gone this beyond this mode of, you know, 
being able to express themselves in a, in a courageous way that they're willing to risk and make mistakes. It would flow. It wouldn't be torrential in the way that really good jazz should be. Your name is Dao, right? So you should flow um, with the Anthony. <laughs> David, actually, it's not. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. By the way, just to be fair, we have to add that there are lots of good, great jazz soloists, jazz musicians in China, Abu and Guaning. We have one right here, or two right here, that are going to play with us pretty soon. There's Nathaniel Gao and uh, Da Zhong. Are you there? Yeah, he's there. Yeah, there he is. Yeah. Uh, I think there's a there's quite a few de- really uh, notable jazz players uh, in Beijing anyway. I don't know about the Shanghai scene so much because I think it's flooded over flooded with foreigners. But there's also some really good Chinese players there too. But like the people that come to mind are Xia Jia, Bei Bei, uh, Zhang Ying, the singer uh, that's married to Liu Yue, who is also a great uh, guitarist and bassist. Uh, Bei Bei, the drummer. And then there's all these up-and-coming new kids, like Shu Zhitong is like this drummer that's just crazy out of this world. And there's more and more just like coming up out of the ranks. They go abroad, they come back, or you know, and they're just like, yeah. But I mean, jazz, do you like jazz? <laughs> I like do jazz. you like jazz? <laughs> um, jazz is a really cool word, but I think that a lot of people like tend to veer away from it if they the first jazz that they hear is something that they didn't like and there's all kind of jazz all kinds of jazz that you can listen to um that are really amazing but i think that the first album that any jazz uh person or someone who wants to like jazz should be the kind of blue album by miles davis i think we would be remiss if we did not mention uh jeremy goldcorn's wife oh yeah Wu Fei, who plays the guzheng and, but she is, plays it like a jazz musician. And she, in fact, uh, quickly figured that out. She, she studied classical guzheng in the usual sort of way. And she quickly realizes this was not any fun. And she went to New York City and studied there and, and started jamming with some of New York City's greatest free jazz musicians. And if you've ever seen her play, I don't know if she's, 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 she's now very big. She's do, working a lot with uh, Abigail Washburn this duo uh, doing st- of folk kinds of things and doing improvisation. Very, very beautiful music. Check her out if you don't know Wu Fei. But, but um, seeing her play this traditional guzheng instrument, which is really not made for jazz. I mean, it's, 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 it's a very delicate, elegant sort of instrument. Seeing her hunched over this instrument, improvising, she looks like Keith Jarrett. You know, over the keyboard, getting all these tonalities and weird tunings and everything with with perfect technique and amazing creativity. And she's got this jazz solo feeling. She's you know putting her heart and soul into it. In a certain sense, that's pretty great to see because it's not only jazz, Chinese jazz, but jazz on a Chinese instrument, which is is very rare. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's that's a sign of that's a wave of the future you know people will do this sort of thing more and more she's totally brilliant and a composer like have you listened to her compositions oh my god singer yeah Yeah. but she's in the states you know flourishing there because i don't think it's as easy to flourish here in that genre or to have that kind of personality even which kind of goes against i don't think i don't think a lot of the her contemporary uh, the people that she went to school with and stuff like that were as 
excited about it. <laughs> Not very many Guzheng jazz players. Yeah, right? <laughs> what would it take for jazz to be more mainstream in this country? You know, um, I guess it's not really mainstream in the U.S. either, but everyone sort of knows and understands what it is. Is it going to have to be like Chinese soccer where Xi Jinping has to take a liking to it before the team shows any improvement? (laughs) I think jazz is totally associated with um, wealth, Um, the cigar and wine You mean mean here? Yes, here here in China. China. And I think that that's why it has a chance to be popular because it's offered uh, and pe- it's, mar- it's marketed as it's this is real foreign stuff. You may yeah. not understand it, but this is real foreign elegance, right? So that's why the beautiful women in the cars and the whiskey. Cohibas. And, right, uh, right. Yeah. So rock performances were often banned or shut down in the 90s. And even after a flourishing of rock festivals in the 2000s, the authorities have, well, they've begun to restrict such activities again. But it seems like jazz has more or less been immune to such pressures from the higher-ups. Would you agree, or are things beginning to change? I don't know. Is Cole Porter's, are his lyrics shocking or against the government in any way? His lyrics are certainly shocking. Yes. You know, they say that bears have love affairs and even camels. We're only mammals. Let's misbehave. That's shocking, you know, if you could actually do that and translate it into Chinese. I think, I think one of the stumbling blocks here, Anthony, is for most people that appreciate jazz, they know the standard songs. Even if you don't like jazz, you've, you've heard the songs like Don't Get Homage, Fly, Me, uh, to Fly Me to the Moon, or these sort of tunes. And part of the fun of listening to jazz singers like Jess is what they do with the tune and with the words, and they stretch out a word or something. If you don't know those standard tunes since you were a kid, or at least growing up in the culture, you don't really understand what is a singer doing? Mm. What is a saxophone player even doing? So I, I think that sort of music that's based on standards and standard repertoire is, has a hard time here because they don't know. But I think translating can go a long way because people can get a sense of the words. There's a, an example that's a little bit peripheral, but it's relevant. Is, is, uh, do you know Zhang Ling, the bass player, Zhang Ling? The blues singer. Blues bass, too. blues singer. Uh, used to play with Sui Jian. Mm. Um, he said, blues is great. It's really great music, and the Chinese ought to resonate with it because it's all about pain. It's all about frustration, lack of money, your girlfriend left you. It's the same thing, Chinese. They all have the same thing. And then the Diaozi gets blue, just made for blues. It's Diaozi music, right? Absolutely. <laughs> but they don't appreciate it because they don't understand what the lyrics are about, right? So he said, I'm going to do blues and, and I'm going to translate it into Chinese. So he went on, was it Washer uh, Gusho or something? That, sh- that oh, TV really? show? Oh, you didn't know that. Yeah. He like won second prize or something on that show. And he had a. Uh, a blues that he trans- he wrote it and he translated it into ch- Chinese and it was called something like Hezui Blues or something like the that. Drunk blues. Drunk blues and, and um, it was it was it was all about, you know, um, you know, my, I hear you you know, my friends, I hear you drank too much last night and he says, No, no, I didn't drink too much. It was just that my girlfriend left me and blah blah blah, blah. and he said, But they said you got really plastic. He says, No, 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 and, and then he lists what he drank. And you know, it's like eating mega tequila, eating pizza, sanping vodka, huge list of drinks. You know, he says, and then he finally ends up this litany. He says, He's like he's drinking himself into oblivion. And and the audience at that climax, they go, yeah. 
yes, we understand what it's like to want to drink yourself to death. <laughs> and and, and we that was the blues. we know the blues. They felt it for the first time in their lives. They said, "Oh, that's what blues is all about." And it was a hit. I mean, people loved it. And and so he's got this thing of translating it into the Chinese. And I think jazz tunes could also could be translated into Chinese because the great thing about jazz lyrics is they cover love from every angle of yeah. these micro angles, not just I love you, use me. There's like there's songs like Cry Me a River. It says, oh, you're coming back to, now you want me, huh? Well, cry me a river, you mother <laughs> you, know, you, you so mean to me, you know? So they have like, like vengeance and anger and subtle sorts of things. And you know, it's like, um, um, it's like the, s- songs like, um, uh, where, where you're talking about, uh, Divorce, like, love is lovelier the second time around. So much lovelier with both feet on the ground. It's talking about the second time you fall in love, not that mystical first time. The second time when you're more mature, you know, this sort of thing, that could be translated into Chinese. Totally. It's just a universal. The uh, Night and Day song by Cole Porter where he's talking about stalking somebody. Did you know that was a stalking no, song? No, I didn't know it was a stalking song. It feels like a stalking the song. The Me Too movement comes in. <laughs> but I don't think any of these lyrics can be, like... Uh, shut down by the government. I don't think that a jazz festival would ever be shut down. No, I don't think. Yeah, that's that right. Reason. They wouldn't shut it down. But you know what Sujian was telling me back then? He says, he said, I think rock and roll has an immediate effect. It's the guy fascia. People get really. Up. But he says jazz is subtler. It gets into you. It's a revolutionary kind of. It's a consciousness raising thing, and it's longer term. And he was saying, you know, look, they they say that the Berlin Wall was brought down partly by jazz. Because it increased this consciousness of people of freedom, you know. So the Berlin Wall, he says, now the Great Wall, right? <laughs> so yeah, I, th- I think I think I think jazz done right is actually a, it's very spiritual music. It's a very uplifting. It's about it's about freedom. It's about pushing the limits, and it's about everything really. But it's it's subtler. It's subtler. Well, Chinese jazz will probably not have that same sort of social effect. Eventually, you think so? Yeah. Why not? I know that you keep saying the word Chinese jazz versus Western jazz, but I have to say that like jazz is jazz, um, and it's about the personal uh, expression that's coming from each player. Like really, yes, like Xia Jia when he writes a composition that's a jazz composition, maybe he'll include some things that have to do with the Chinese scale um, or, or harmonies or harmonics or whatever. But I still think that it's it's jazz. It's not Chinese jazz. Like I, that. That kind of makes my... Perhaps jazz in China is a better way of putting it. Much better. By the way, David, this for the third time I've had to mark down where you said, where you cursed, because as you know, we can't curse on the Seneca podcast anymore. You Hold can't? I forgot about that. But you know what? We're in Beijing where it all started, so f*** it. <laughs> Before we get on to official recommendations... This guy, this guy's good. He does. He comes across as a Swede and everything, and then he hits you with that. Anthony, you're great. That's great. Before we must go to Kansas <laughs> City sometime and visit your home. Yeah. Um, I, maybe you don't. It's Kansas no. City. I mean, yeah. you know. Um, so before we get to official recommendations, maybe the two of you could tell us where in Beijing, which is, by the way, the city has its problems. We all know that, but it's a city that's very near and dear to my heart. And yours as well, seeing as how both of you have been here for more than two decades. Where can we catch jazz during the week? Jianghu Bar has a jazz jam session and several jazz um, 
kinds of concerts per month. Um, Bricks, which is close by to here. Chow Hotel was having jazz all the time, and they've recently just had to stop for uh, re-looking at their paperwork. And um, DDC has jazz sometimes. Uh, Eshore Jazz Cafe. Um, Good Bait, which is down here as well. South Sandleyton. Where else? Uh, I'm missing some. Yeah, there's one. Well, East Shore. I said East Shore. Okay. I said it. I, I don't, you know. All the house, I said, yeah. Franks. They, they're, they're making it harder on some jazz musicians, foreigners, to come here easily and play. They're cracking, they're cracking down a little bit. It's harder to get it. In Shanghai, they're totally, like, sending people away. Right, right. I don't think this, they have nothing against jazz. They're just cracking down on anything that's fun and humanly meaningful. <laughs> that's really what it is. So Jess Miter, thanks so much for joining us on this stage at the Bookworm. We must carry on. (laughs) We will carry on the Seneca tradition of recommendations. But first, I want to remind our listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SupChina. Visit SupChina.com to subscribe to our newsletter and read some of the great original writing we're featuring on the site. Please also follow us on Twitter or on Facebook, where the handle is SupChinaNews, or drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. And of course, if you want to support what we're doing, you should sign up for SupChina Access, our members-only section that includes extra content and analysis, plus access to a special Slack channel where you can talk to the editors. Also, if you enjoy Seneca or any of our other podcasts, which Kaiser works very hard to produce, please leave us a positive review on the iTunes store or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help. On to recommendations. David, let's begin with you. So I'm Jeremy Wright. Um, I'd like to recommend, uh, you can find him on YouTube and probably all over the internet, uh, one of these examples of a new rising Chinese jazz star. A guy named uh, Abu is his nickname. Abu A, just A B U. Abu. His name is, is Dai Liang, actually. Um, he started around here uh, when he was 12, 13 years old. He suddenly showed up in some clubs. 12 year old kid come up to the keyboard. Can I play a little bit? So, yeah, okay, I thought he was going to play, you know, for release or something, you know. And he's playing his Latin jazz with both hands. This unbelievable technique. And Sui Jan was there one night and f- spent the whole evening videotaping him, saying, this guy's genius, a genius. And he went on then to, to start recording his old albums. His father sent him to the U.S. He went on to play with Chick Corea, uh, the Blue Note in New York, and then here. And I think he's, I don't know how old he is right now, maybe 16 or 17 or something like that. But he is an absolute prodigy, unbelievable technique. And one of these, uh, just a shentong, I don't know if you say that, uh, who's at very young age has mastered has a very a mastery of jazz. He's, his videos are on YouTube, very modest and unassuming, but the future of Chinese jazz right there. Uh, and he's, he's right. He's right at the right generation because he, he grew up listening to it. Yes, I'm gonna have to plug myself because I wasn't really prepared for this <laughs> again. Um, the 16th, which is this Friday, I'll be playing at Frank's Alla House from 9 to 11, and I'll play there again on the 30th. Uh, if you want more information about that, you can go to my website, jessmiter.com. 
Um, and I would like to recommend a contemporary jazz vocalist called Cecile McLaurin Salvant. Uh, she's relatively new on the scenes in the world, but she is amazing. I really like her jazz, and her ensembles are amazing, and her arrangements are amazing. So you can check her out as well. I have three recommendations. I'm getting a little carried away, I'm sorry. I had more, but I was being <laughs> modest. <laughs> We'll do it later. Yes. There's a compelling argument in Oxford dictionaries that the word jazz, spelled J-A-Z-Z, first made its appearance in 1912 on a baseball diamond in the Pacific Coast League. A pitcher for the Portland Beavers apparently invented a pitch called the jazz ball, which was a pitch that wobbled, and later it became associated with pep. So baseball and jazz really have always been inextricably tied. And there's no better illustration of this than in Kansas City, specifically in the 18th and Vine District, which is where you'll find the National Negro Leagues Museum, located right next to the American Jazz Museum. Go visit both. Taken together, they constitute one of Kansas City's best attractions. And trust me, I grew up in Kansas City, so I do know. They got some crazy little women there. You know the song. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed, indeed, indeed. That's not the line people usually quote, but thank you, David. It was Robert Pinsky who said music and poetry are sister arts, so I'd like to recommend contemporary poetry. For those of you who don't know where to begin, please check out the website Poetry 180, which was the project of Billy Collins when he was the U.S. Poet Laureate. It's a sampling of poems from some of the best poets of the last 20 or 30 years or so. And also, please listen to the Poetry Foundation podcast, which is very well produced. There's so much good work being done right now. Contemporary poetry really deserves a much bigger spotlight. And finally, I have to recommend the Bookworm Literary Festival. A small disclosure, I used to work here. I coordinated the 9th and 10th festivals, but um, I do just want to say some words about this festival and what Peter Goff, specifically the organizer, does to make it happen, because I don't think enough people appreciate it or know exactly how difficult it is. So this is the 11th year, and in this one, Peter has done everything, logistics, scheduling events, writing the booklet, blurbs. It really has been a heroic effort. And on top of all this, as if that wasn't hard enough, he has to parry encroachments from local cops and put up with court summons and go to the police station in the middle of nowhere to fight spurious charges. I guess that's kind of what happens when you have an independent platform for free expression. I think the bookworm has done more to promote mutual understanding across so many different boundaries and divides than any institution in this immediate area And I don't think there's any other place, for instance, that offers the sort of engagement that we find between Chinese and foreigners, certainly not at this scale. So I really do think of the bookworm as a Beijing institution. And not to get a little grim on you, but I say this now because I don't feel like this festival can exist. It feels impossible in some ways. And again, not to be vague or foreboding, but that just seems like the reality of our commercialized, conservative, politically fraught times that we're in. So I just want to say, you know, I just hope we all remember how special this event is, the difficulty with which it's put together, this little bit of history that we're a part of. And 
it doesn't matter how much time is left in your personal China hourglass. Wherever you go, may we all spread the lore of the bookworm and the bookworm festival ever far and forever. Can you please join me in thanking Peter Goff and everyone on his team? Peter is such a mensch. Actually, he's probably mad at me because I just did that. But you know what? If it's a survival tactic, we can just edit all that out. Okay, Jess, thanks once again. Thank you. David, as always, great to see you. Let's cue the music. music. We, we shall indeed. Um, those in the audience, you're in for a treat because David will be getting on the piano. Jess will be getting up on the mic. We're going to bring up Da Jung, who is a bass player, and Nathaniel Gall on the saxophone. You guys ready for some live music? The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash SupChina News. And follow us on Twitter at SupChina News. Kaiser and Jeremy will be back next week. I'm Anthony Tao. Thanks for listening and take care. We're going to do a tune uh, called There Will Never Be Another You. And it's a, a tune about uh, breaking it off with someone and then realizing that, uh, or maybe they broke it off with you, I don't know. But you're out and about and you're trying to find someone just like them, but you can never find them again. There will never be another you. Yeah? <laughs>
Stop it, stand